Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to Talking with Traders. And this week, I've got another returning guest. It's Greg Davies, who's the head of wealth at Kratos uh, Asset Management. Uh, He joined us last year on the podcast on the 8th of April, and we had a super chat that time. So I'm really looking forward to catching up with you again, Greg. Welcome. Welcome to Talking with Traders. Thank you very much. Good Good to be chatting again. Yeah, thanks. As I mentioned, uh, the last time we spoke was on the 8th of April, 2020. And that day is particularly memorable because on the podcast, we spoke about Cecil on the day and you'd been trading Cecil. I'd also been trading Cecil, but it was a crazy day. The stock's price had been varying in range from 51 Rand at the bottom of the range to 84 Rand at the top of the range that day. And obviously we sit now with um, Cecil up you know, around 250 Rand or even nudging up towards 300. So it's been quite a year for that stock. Did you manage to hang on to any of the Cecil shares that you were trading or buying at that time when we spoke last year? Yes, fortunately we still got for myself and for the clients. It, it was such a valuable, interesting lesson. Um, I think overall in investing because um, as, as sort of investment professionals, we're always giving clients advice. And, you know, as you say, when Sassel was down, I think at one point it was below 50 Rand. And we sort of, we knew the numbers, we knew the debt was way bigger than even the market cap. And it's one of the fascinating things that doesn't happen very often, but it was almost as if the non-professionals realized that Sassel was a buyer long before any, any of us. Um, Paul Teron, uh, quite a well-known stockbroker um, in, in the markets, was on television quite a lot. He came out and put one of his quite famous videos. Um, you know, these are sort of probably families are listening to this, but I won't describe how, but he, he You could say it, because no I, know, I know what he said, and you can say it. Don't yeah. worry, this is an adult podcast. <laughs> he said he'd rather put part of his body in a, in, in a crocodile's mouth but rather than buying Cecil, and he was completely wrong. Yeah. And I did, have, I did have a similar experience. Clients were phoning, phoning me and saying, Greg, don't you think Cecil, I mean, it was 600 Rand, it's down at 40 Rand, don't you think it's a buy? And we were all put off a little bit by the debt, but it's just an interesting case study that the public you know, almost understood the sort of size and the sort of high quality of Cecil, um, really that it managed to fight through and, and execute that situation in, in Lake Charles, get the debt under control. They were lucky with the oil price recovering. We did have that severe wobble in, in the oil price and, and it's proven in the chair 
um, had, a, had a run at, at 300 Rand. I think it's around 260 at the moment. But um, such an interesting opportunity that doesn't come along every day in the market. Yeah, you're right. They don't come around very often. I mean, the one that I can think back to, which happened a couple of years ago, was a similar setup was when Anglo-American traded down to 50 Rand a share. And um, it didn't stay there for very long, but also it was sort of just ridiculously cheap at the time, almost priced to go bust, which I suppose Sassel was when we spoke last year as as well. So interesting to see those kind of opportunities that come up. And as you say, very interesting that the retail market did kind of get involved on that. And I think a lot of people have made a lot of money on Sassel since then, because you say they've got the debt under control. And the other thing is that a lot of people were expecting that they would have to raise capital or do a rights issue to, to basically bolster the balance sheet. And it didn't happen. They've they've managed to actually negotiate or navigate their way out of that problem without raising any capital. And, uh, and as you said, the share price is now back up hitting for 300 Rand. Interesting times. So fascinating these days. I mean, what I've loved of developments the last few years is, is financial Twitter. Uh, you know, the people which discuss the market, it's almost like having a, in a, a peanut gallery of people, you know, saying Sassel's got no chance, almost like a heckler, Mm. Uh, you know, at, a, at the stand-up comedians and, you know, everyone who was positive in Cecil was run down and people were making very good cases left, right and centre. But, um, you know, the share price is the best defence in many cases and uh, Cecil proved all his detractors on, on Twitter wrong. Yeah, I did. And you're right about Twitter being a bit of a, an interesting space where everyone gets to have a say because I, I find it quite an interesting place to, to almost gain or gauge the, the sentiment in the market, as you say, you you know you start to see a lot of noise. I always I have a saying that the noise is always the loudest at the extremes, and that can be at the top or at the bottom. But you're right. I mean, a time like that where Cecil is is trading down at 20, 20 rand a share, which it was at that time of the year, um, the noise around Cecil was very very loud. And then at the same extreme, sometimes you get a lot of noise on the other end, like for example, a Tesla, which has recently traded up north of one thousand two hundred dollars a share and the market cap is over a trillion dollars and suddenly you know you just see everyone making a hell of a lot of noise around around that stock and that also from a the opposite end of the spectrum could also mark a sentiment extreme and the price is now starting to hit you know hit a bit lower so it is interesting to use twitter as a um as a as a market sentiment gauge in a way if if you follow the right sort of people, I think. But talking of Twitter and, uh, and, and getting away from that a little bit, something that I've noticed you, you do, do seem to tweet about quite a lot, Greg, which we didn't touch on when we spoke last year, is the, is the cryptocurrency space. Um, I've seen you getting excited when uh, Ethereum recently broke out to a new high. Um, you tweet quite a lot about Bitcoin. And you mentioned off air that this is a new area of the market that you've been keeping a fairly close eye on. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I know um, you're interested in it. So tell us what you're seeing there. Well, for a long time, I was well, I described myself as a conscientious objector mm. to these uh, crypto coins. You know, I could see that something was very interesting, but I suppose being a little bit of an old school broker and growing up in quite a sort of, in through the stockbroking world, quite sort of a regulated environment. Along comes something which is unregulated. It's got a lot of terminology. It's got a lot of technology, which we don't understand. I was fortunate that someone um, recommended a, a book called The Bitcoin Billionaires by Ben Masryk. Um, a lot of background story, um, 
the, the Winklevoss brothers, which quite sort of involved in the initial founding of Facebook, had a fallout with, with Zuckerberg and were sort of pushed to the sides of, of the tech world and sort of really made a comeback by taking a bit of a gamble, going and finding these interesting characters that 10, 15 years ago were the founders of, of Bitcoin, were the sort of early converters. It's almost like a cult, mm-hmm. um, almost sort of hippies <laughs> kind of feel about it. So Bohemians are the only ones who were buying Bitcoins at the time. But, a, but the book changed my outlook a little bit um, on it. And, and um, I sort of got the feeling that perhaps, you know, You've got to look at it as a way of storing money. And so you're quite a leap of faith, but I, I have recently invested in Ethereum. I bought in about September. So, so far, uh, it's been, been a positive experience. I've got a feeling that it may be something similar to what happens with, with a NASDAQ situation, the NASDAQ bubble, which occurred in the late 90s, where all these exciting new tech companies came to the market. The share prices were completely overvalued. There was a huge correction around, obviously around the 2000, 2001 period, but that's where the opportunity was, where you could come and pick up, you know, the Amazons, uh, the Microsofts, maybe maybe not Tesla just yet, but those type of businesses, which were, were going to last. And I think some of these um, cryptocurrencies are, have got a, a future. I've sort of put a foot in the door, made a small investment at, in the moment, but actually deep down hoping there is a sharp pullback that we can... Um, you know, almost re-enter at much lower levels. Yeah, it's interesting you say that and you draw the comparison to, to 1999 and the dot-com boom um, because there's certainly a lot of parallels. Uh, and I mean, I don't know the number of cryptocurrencies that there are out there, but it, it goes into the thousands now, doesn't it? Yes, we've got um, Kratos who set up a crypto desk, but uh, if I look at the employees, it's basically no one over the age of 25 because they are the only ones who seem to not have that sort of thing in your mind saying, you know, what am I really investing? There's no real earnings, but they sort of look at the world differently. And I think as you know, you've, you've got to be surrounded by these, these youngsters that sort of point out the opportunities, keep, keep the mind fresh. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting you say that because I mean I like I'm now uh, slightly on the wrong side of forty, and uh, and I'm also seeing this, seeing these youngsters getting involved in all of this kind of stuff, and 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 like you, I suppose I come from a slightly older school uh, type of background and been a bit of a skeptic around the cryptos and all of that sort of thing. But you see all of these youngsters doing these things, and I think something I've always thought about the youngsters, and I kind of think back to myself as a youngster, is that you don't really have the same. You don't have as much life experience, but you also therefore don't have the same appreciation for risk. And that sometimes is a good thing and sometimes a bad thing as well. But, you know, I, I, I think that maybe that's what's playing into the hands of these youngsters. They don't, they haven't seen bear markets. They haven't seen markets crash and therefore, you know, they just, they're playing this game and it's great and they're doing a lot, doing very well. But on that point, you, you mentioned that you're surrounded by a lot of youngsters at Kratos. And I know Kratos is a, a home for day traders. That's predominantly what you guys do. There's not all you do. As I said, you're the head of wealth there. So you've also got a, a big wealth business, but it's quite well known in the industry that Kratos is a home for, for a lot of day traders, youngsters who go there, sit, rent a desk, get a screen uh, and and basically get to experience the environment of being in a dealing room 
and what it's like to to trade amongst other traders and learn from others and so on. So in that respect, uh, you know, what's the last year been like in terms of taking up new seats at Kratos? I, I know you said when we spoke last year that you sit in on a lot of the meetings to interview the new youngsters that come in and want to get a seat in the dealing room. So you know, how many of those, have, have you seen a big take up in that type of opportunity this year since we last spoke? I think one of the things with with the um, the COVID situation, people being locked down, I think people had more time to sit at home, think about markets. I definitely, from the private client point of view, noticed a pickup in business. Somebody who was you know frantically running a, a business that had started up on their own was now stuck at home, so they had time to phone, look at the market. So we did find a pickup there. What we have found uh, with with the day traders is, is it ha- it has slowed down a little bit. Um, a lot of uh, the more seasoned ones of, I suppose it's just one of the side effects of COVID. There's quite a lot of trading from home, so we're hoping in the in the new year that um, you know the, the, the traders will start coming back. You, you miss that trading floor type of atmosphere. There's still a steady group that that comes in regularly, but I would I would say overall. Um, there's been a lot of opportunities in, in the small caps, and that has brought, brought some more day traders into the market. Um, and it's, it's again, it's as you're saying, it's it's a younger person sort of entry level in, into the markets. They're day trading, and you know they they haven't seen the crashes that we we perhaps have seen. So they're much more optimistic outlook. What what I do find fascinating about them is there's not a lot of you know fundamental type of research. These real day traders. They just they just look they trade what's on the screen, which is in something which you're either born with or, or you're not. It's almost like poker where you can sort of read the cards, mm. you know. And I'll sit with them and I'll say, "But why are you, why are you buying this particular account?" And I'll go, "But can't you see that there's a lot of buyers?" And I'm saying, "I can also see there's a lot of sellers, but some of them have just got been given a, a gift." Yeah, I guess it's that case of reading price action, um, and I know that's I guess a little bit the the way I trade is try, try and see what's happening in the price action, although still do keep abreast of the uh, of the fundamentals as well. Um, and Greg, you, you spoke about small caps there moments ago, and you said that a lot of the youngsters have done well with the small caps, and there has been quite a lot of money to be made in the small cap space on the JSE in, in the last year. Um, I interviewed Anthony Clark on this podcast uh, in the first episode of this, this current season, and we spoke a lot about small caps because that's his game, and he's had a very good year with uh, the, the re-ratings that we've seen in a lot of the small cap companies on the JSE. But it also leads me to another question which I asked him as well is that it's to say that there doesn't seem to be any new listings coming to the JSE and there are a lot of companies that seem to be delisting as I look through the market in a month on month on month you start to see companies that are being taken off the exchange they're either being acquired or they're choosing to go and list on an offshore exchange um, you know something that's topical right now just as an example is is distel which is is likely to be taken out now by um, Heineken. So soon that's going to be another stock lost to the JSE. And we're seeing more and more of this uh, of this happening. Does it concern you that the JSE is sliding more and more into irrelevance given the number of delistings and, and the lack of new listings? It does really feel like that. And perhaps we're a little bit close to the, you know, you talk to people who've been in the market along, and obviously I got your questions ahead of the weekend. So I've been asking a lot of people their thoughts on, on this. Yeah, there is a school of thought that says these things are cyclical. We are definitely seeing a lot of smaller cap, mid caps 
being swallowed up by offshore players and delistings and mergers and so on. It does feel as though the universe of shares which we can invest in is getting smaller. Um, there's a school of thought which says the, this thing is cyclical and, and you know these things will, will come back again, but um, it, it doesn't feel like that sort of, sort of at the cold face. It, it feels like we, we still got a lot of delistings, a lot of mergers still to do. And also a thing which has changed in the market recently or it's been in development the last four or five years are, are, are these index trackers, you know, where you can buy a basket of, you know, an ETF that's exposed to a particular sector. So there's almost less need for, 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 for niche listings, really. Um, you get sort of these trackers that cover all the all bases, really. So that's the one way that the, the market's going. But I, I think perhaps over time, the one thought that I did have on the JSC um, where I think they could probably boost the turnover. And the turnovers have been pretty poor this, this month so far, sort of consistently below 20 billion. Um, is perhaps, you know, they've, they've moved the clocks back. Obviously, you're in the UK, so you'd be aware of this. Mm. But if we could, we could move the JSC opening to, to 10 o'clock and the closing till 6, we would then overlap an extra an hour and a half with the US in the afternoon. And, and at first hour of trade here on the JSC, when, when the UK and the European markets are closed, the volumes are so thin that a lot of institutional clients are saying to me they won't uh, trade in the market the first hour. They'll wait until the, the volumes really pick up. And then the other things we've seen, sort of almost like 15 or 20% each day of the total value of shares trading on the JST takes place in the closing auction, which is also a bit of a worrying trend where we'd prefer as traders to, to, to be trading in the open market or, or away from the auctions. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Yeah, that's an interesting suggestion to extend it by by an hour on either side. I wonder how the rest of the market would feel about that. Because you're right, that that, that first hour on the JSE, I mean, it, it's a complete waste of time. And it's been like that for a number of years. I found when I was living there and when I was a broker on the on, on the desk at BOE, we, we always found during the UK winter months, that first hour, the volumes were very thin, the spreads were very wide. So you often just felt it was better to to wait it out until the, the the UK market came online to bring that liquidity in. In line with that, though, what you talked about now about the JSE, sort of the number of listings decreasing, the number of available stocks to trade decreasing, the potential opportunities not as, as big as they were. I see more and more people moving their focus to offshore. And there are a lot of operators in South Africa now that give you the ability to trade the offshore market so that you can gain access to everything in the US and the UK and Europe, et cetera. Are you seeing a, a big move with your client base towards offshore investing? Yes, we've um, we've got a division here at Kratos Asset Management where we allow the clients to trade into offshore. Um, profile of the client that's doing that kind of thing is slightly more sophisticated. He's a type of client would have a similar platform to what you guys have got at IG, where he could sit and trade into the evenings. Um, but there's type of clients that don't need that much coaching. We obviously send out emails with ideas and so on. But you know, the more sophisticated clients, 
are definitely going, you know, trading directly into, in especially the U.S. because of you know the volumes, the opportunities. I suppose, you know, it's also a young man's game because if you've got kids and and a wife you want to eat dinner with, and the markets are calling you. But I mean, that's until eleven o'clock in the evening now with the U.S. moving its clock back. Yeah. So it's a bit like Bitcoin. It never gives you. a a moment's peace and quiet, you know, if, you, if you're going to trade into those markets. For myself, I've sort of gone the route of, of, of the local trackers that, or anything that's listed here locally on the JSC that tracks, I actually, um, I think you had Bruce Main on, on the pod some, about a week and a half back. Yes. And I'm a big fan of Bruce and he got me into the Tesla call option. Uh, the code is T-S-E-T-N-C. Mm. Um, so I've sort of, Dabbled up, but I wouldn't call it trading. I've more more invested in, in in offshore, but definitely, I think a way where the local brokers here in Johannesburg or around South Africa are going to expand in, into trading offshore markets. Yeah, it seems that way. I think I would argue that any broker in, in South Africa now that doesn't offer some sort of an offshore offering is um, is is very short sighted. We think that it's clear that the opportunities on the JSE are starting to to slim down a lot and. Um, there's a huge world out there, not only of number of stocks to trade, but just industries and uh, different businesses doing interesting things. It's just there's a, a massive, massive world of, of, of opportunities out there beyond the, uh, the borders of, of South Africa. Yeah, and the movements. I mean, obviously, I think earlier in this year, we saw that GameStop situation, mm. um, these mean stops, it, almost as if um, the public, which would have been forgotten about them in the markets in in, in um in the US, especially, are suddenly finding a voice. The, the retail investor has suddenly sort of grown muscles there in the US, and it's sort of encouraging for us here in, in South Africa to see that. And you've seen, um, you know, various people popping up in that sort of retail space, um, mm. thinking of the guys from Easy Equities and so on. Um, so it's definitely brought more interest back back into the markets, you know, with all these. Um, wild stock movements and i mean in the u.s when your shares move and it's you know it's always in dollars the numbers are eye-popping which is what you can make if you get things correct there yeah no they are and i mean we're in the thick of earnings season in the u.s right now and what i'm finding is that the gaps the overnight gaps on on u.s earnings is incredible can be up or down so you, you can find you walk walk in in the morning and you're suddenly your position's doing really really well for you or alternatively you've been Delta solid hiding. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a different market, but so many more interesting opportunities. And on that note, though, what, what are you seeing if, you, if I were to pick your brain a bit in terms of opportunities now, um, looking out over the next, let's say, the next 12 months, what's, what's catching your eye from an investment or trading perspective? I think there's quite a bit of value in, in most of our small caps. Um, I mean, just think of the opportunities it got in last year in about October, November, like something like Arsenal Metal was around 45 cents. It's, it's, it's around six rand 20 today. We actually still along that counter. We still think into the new year, it's probably got, got some more upside, probably to the nine, 10 rand area. Once we get some, some more earnings through, which will be January, February next year. Um, I'm a big fan of a little share called Huleman. I've got it in my JSC stock picking competition. That's moved. That was one rand offered in the ne- this time last year, and as many shares as you wanted. That's moved up to four rand. It is under cautionary, so that would explain that that share price movement. Um, also, like Marafi. So yeah, quite a few of the, of the small caps still on our radar. 
Okay. All right. Super. That's the smaller stuff. And then offshore, are you anything particular getting you excited offshore? I mean, I know you said you're mainly going in via ETFs, so that's a nice diversified way to play it. But any stock specifics that you that you focus on, or is it all really through the ETF vehicles? Got some quite eccentric mates that always come up with these interesting themes, really. And one which I was discussing with someone on Saturday evening was. Um, his, his argument was is defense stocks, you know, anything in, in the military space is, is probably the way we, we're going to go. I mean, I think the Chinese have realized that you know, Biden is quite weak. Uh, you know, how, how, you know how, the things which have happened in the military over the last couple of months, they've got their eye on Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russia's been flexing a, a muscle. So if I had to buy an ETF uh, offshore with something in, in, in defense space, for sure. Okay. Yeah. And there are those um, in the US. I'm just trying to think of the one. There is definitely an aerospace and defense ETF, but um, I, I'm not going to look it up right now because we're chatting. But um, there, there's, there certainly are those opportunities to, to invest in that sector uh, offshore. And just also talking about uh, market cycles a little bit, which we, we've spoken a bit about, but just want to come back to this. Um, You've been through a lot of cycles, Greg. You've, I, mean, I think you said you started on in the early 80s when we spoke last time, I think you said. So you've seen some bull markets and bear markets and, and booms and busts. Um, what we're seeing in the US at the moment, does it, does it worry you in terms of where we are in the bigger cycle? And this is very different to the JSC, obviously, because the JSC is kind of, to a large extent, it's missed out on this decade-long bull market that's been evident in the US. But does does some of what's happening in the US now smack of the type of things we saw in 1999, where there's lots of IPOs coming to the market that are unprofitable, um, huge appetite for risk, obviously aided by low interest rates and, and stimulus being injected into the markets. But a lot of those tailwinds for the markets, for the US market in particular, um, look as if they are coming to an end soonish with the talk of now, well, not the talk, the reality is tapering has begun. So that the stimulus is being pulled back. And then the interest rate outlook is one that suggests that, you know, rates are going to head higher from here, not lower. So does that worry you? And and does it echo similarities to what we saw in 1999? Certainly, certainly feels like, especially in in the tech space, if you think that in the the amount of wealth that's tied up in, in your Apple's, obviously we spoke about Tesla, your Facebooks, all of those those tech counters, um, compared to, to how much money is tied up in, in, in the rest of the world, it's just too heavily skewed to all of those. I often think, you know, when there's four or five shares which are sort of outstripping the rest of the market, it's more a question of a lack of good ideas. No one else can think of anything else decent to buy. So the client walks in, he's got money, let's just buy an Apple and Microsoft, you know, but that's because, we, you know, no one can think of anything that, that's really going to do better. I mean, to answer your question a little bit on, on, on cycles, I, do, I actually do think the resource cycles are pro- probably going to be a little bit longer than the market expects. And I, I suspect the JSC will play a little bit of catch-up. Um, certainly we've seen it in, in the small cap space, but if, if some of our big resource counters can, can catch some of this, I mean, obviously the stimulus spend, which has just been signed off, in the US, theoretically, sh- should be a, a, a big help. So, you know, sort of holding, holding on for that. Mm, okay. It's one of the things I wanted to ask you is around the resources sector and the mining sector. So since you've brought it up, let's bring that question in right now. Um, 
because it is a very cyclical area. Mine, mining and resources are, are hugely cyclical stocks. And if you catch the catch the right side of the cycle, you can make a lot of money on the way up, but you can also lose a lot of money on the way down when the cycle unwinds. So it's interesting to see where we are uh, in the in the mining cycle and the resources cycle at this point in time. I'm sure you've seen it, Greg, Investec uh, Research publish a, a mining clock or resources clock, I think they call it. And it's and, and just to describe it to the listeners, it's like a typical clock with you know hands that go around from one until, until 12. And the way they look at this thing is they basically say you're looking at the times in the cycle, and as you get you know past six o'clock, heading up towards nine o'clock, that's when the cycle is quite mature, and then you start heading from nine o'clock up until twelve o'clock on the cycle, and that's where you start to see things like lots of mergers and acquisitions, special dividends, share buybacks, and all that kind of thing, and that's where we've been in the in the resources cycle for the last year, year or two, where. These mining companies have been printing a lot of money. Think of Anglos and Billiton. They have been doing mm-hmm. share buybacks. They've uh, they, they, and, and it does appear now as if there's also more and more uh, mergers and corporate action starting to happen in that space. So, in terms of the mining cycle from a bigger picture perspective, you know, are you worried then that it's getting late in the day? I know you said that the cycle might last a bit longer, but for the likes of an Anglo's and a Billiton, how are you feeling about those two now? Given, especially given their heavy dependence on iron ore. Oh, that's, that's such an interesting thing about watching and trading these these resource counters and away from those two, but like so take something like Sabania comes mm. out with an excellent set of results. Great dividend. I, I speak quite regularly to the people there. They're amazed the share price doesn't react much more positively. So, for example, every broker's got a target of 70 or 75 rand. You know, the share can't get past 52 rand. But it's an interesting phenomenon in the in the market. When these companies are doing particularly well, sometimes their share prices aren't rewarded. And I think the psychology around it is the market's thinking, They've had the best of times. They've paid off this huge dividend. They've bought the shares back. But what they're going to do for the, you know, going forward? So there's that slight disbelief when things are going so well, well for them. I think generally investing in resource counters is not a lot of fund managers' sort of comfort zone. They like things where they can be certain, they can see through the earnings. Mm. Uh, and with resource counters, you obviously need sort of the macro, macro risk and those type of things, which are so difficult to sort of really understand because, you know, it's a moving target. You've got COVID, all of these type of things. So I do think these resource counters should be a lot higher, but I can understand the market's reticence to, to, to drive these things too much higher at this point. Mm. Yeah, I must say, when I look at the charts of the particularly Anglos and Billiton, the weekly charts, those look to me like they're topping out or rolling over almost. So Banya is one you mentioned, and it's an interesting stock because it's heavily weighted towards platinum and gold, but they're looking to try and get more and more into the the, green energy supply chain, I suppose. They're looking for reserves of lithium, cobalt, nickel, that type of stuff to try and diversify their asset mix. So in terms of the JSE, when you don't really get an opportunity to to get into those types of resources, do you? There's and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're a, a JSE investor and you're wanting to get exposure to lithium or cobalt and this whole supply chain towards electrical vehicles and so on, where do you do it? There, there isn't too much in that way offered on the JSE, is there? No, there's, there's nothing really directly. I suppose 
but perhaps an opportunity to, for someone to make an, another tracker that can, can track that side of the market. Yeah, certainly, I mean, it's very often with these resource counters, it, it's about the management. Uh, Neil Froman's obviously Sabania, and he's, he's a character that's, he likes a little bit of risk, but I, certainly as a CEO, larger than life. And I think if anyone's going to, to sort of pull off that trade, it, it'll be somebody like him. Yeah, well, that's it. I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where the market is probably excited, but also a little bit nervous because if he's going to go after these types of assets, he's, he's probably going to have to um, raise capital, I guess, to do it. Yeah, that's, and, and, that's, and, always, that's the thing which keeps Sabanya shareholders at That's it. You, 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 always worry, you always time. worry that there's a big rights issue or a, or a book build coming around the corner. So <laughs> maybe that's what's keeping it suppressed. Um, you mentioned 52 Rand on Sabania. I've, I've got the technical levels about 57 that I look at and that it really needs to recover back above 57 in order to put the bulls back in the driving seat. And if it can get back above that level, then I think it'll look, it'll look a lot more healthy than what it has done for the last little while. Um, I was just comparing our markets to the years. It's like something like Sabania, it trades almost like a US stock where it trades on 10 million shares a day. The price range can be like over two Rand 50. So for, for day traders, I mean, obviously when, you know, you can't just go blazing, but I mean, it's, it's a lovely stock to trade Impala, some, something similar. Um, obviously Anglos and bullets and you, you can do something like that, but from a liquidity point of view, for a day trading sort of situation, something like Sabania is a godsend, really. Mm, yeah, it is. Plenty of liquidity and plenty of movement. Exactly what you want as a day trader. We're nearly wrapping up the, the interview now, Greg. So just the last couple of things and the last question, really. Um, and it leads back to something that I, that I mentioned earlier, or we spoke about earlier, that you get a lot of youngsters coming in there uh, to, to Kratos looking for a home to get a desk and get exposure to the markets. Um, what sort of advice would you give to a new a new youngster starting in the markets now? It's going to probably be a little bit odd, but I would I would say it's sort of less focus on fundamentals and, and more a little bit on macro and understanding flows. Because when I see these, these traders frustrated, and you go over to them and you see that they've got X position and it's you know the shares trading at this price and it should be that price, and it's, give me a reasoning. And they fall back on, on fundamentals, which obviously have got, you know, promise. And obviously, that's what you sort of hang your hat on. But sometimes on a day-to-day trading basis, you've just got to try and pick up almost, as comedians would say, read the room. Just pick up the sentiment, really, of why people, people thinking might be wrong, but you've got to get on, on track with them. And you obviously got to try and be out first. But just focus on, on too much fundamentals. Um, can sometimes put people off. I mean, I, every morning we've got an area upstairs where I, where I lay out the business days and very often by 12 o'clock I walk past there and I see no one's even opened it. So <laughs> day traders very often just trading what's on the screen and I, it's, it's probably that's shorter term, that's the, that's the way to go around it. Yeah, yeah, to read the price action. The, the, the one truth in the market is the price at that given time. You know, everything else you can... You can think what you like, I guess, but the truth is uh, is in the price at that given moment. Super. Well, Greg, I think that's it. We've run out of time for this podcast, so I'm going to wrap it up now. But it's been fantastic catching up with you again. Um, thanks very much for your time. It's, it's very much appreciated. 
And as we continue with these episodes of Talking with Traders, I'd like to come back to you at some stage, possibly in the next six to 12 months again, to, to once again catch up and get and pick your brain a bit more about some of the insights that you're seeing in the markets at that point in time. Thanks, Carl. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Super. Thanks, Greg. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking with Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.